Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to our Saturday afternoon Truth Quest Q&A, where we look at questions through the link. <laughs> we look at questions through the lens or the light of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the truth is and to search the Scriptures to find them. Kind of like the Thessalonians, who were said to be more fair-minded than the Bereans, because they received the word of God with all joy, but they searched the Scriptures to see whether or not these things are true. And that is our desire, that when we might be able to search God's Word and find out what the truth is, find out what God wants from us. We want to rightly divide the Word of God. We want to compare Scripture to Scripture. Make sure that we are doing the things that are correct. It's good to see you guys. I hope you're having a great day. We'll be taking questions for the next hour. So if you want to give us a question, then write out your question, put the word question or a question mark in front of it, and then reread your question a couple of times just to make sure it makes sense and that it says what you want it to say, and then go ahead and submit it. I've got a first question that we're going to cover, and then we'll get into your questions. So I've really been enjoying these Q and A's. Um, and really kind of looking at the heart of what kind of questions are out there, I think it's really helpful to me as well as being able to search the scriptures uh, when I get a question that I'm not sure about. All right, so um, I'm gonna go ahead and bring on our first question here. And so this question is, uh, what is the first resurrection in light of the rapture of the church? Now, I understand this question and understand why this question is being asked. Because there are videos that are on YouTube and they say that, you know, the, the first resurrection is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 and um, it's after the millennium and therefore there can be no pre-tribulation rapture or there cannot be any rapture at all, some of them say. And so I'm sure that this question comes out of that trying to figure out, is this really true? Well, uh, when we're considering the resurrection, let's start by taking a look at one of the places in the Bible where the word resurrection or where the topic of the resurrection comes up. Let me go ahead and bring you, I'll bring the scriptures up on the screen here. And this is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. And there are no doubt that this is a resurrection passage, right? And it starts off by saying, when this resurrection passage starts off, it starts off by saying, behold, which means I'm going to tell you something that's a little shocking. I'm going to tell you something that, that, that it's going to knock your socks off. You're going to be amazed by this. That's what behold means. If I start a sentence today with behold, there better be something really good that follows. And that's what Paul does here as well. Behold. And then he says this, I tell you a mystery. Right off the bat, the resurrection, but especially this idea that some are not going to die but be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, is a mystery. No wonder people have such a hard time understanding it. And it tells us that we cannot approach the topic of the resurrection with simplicity, with an over-simplistic view, like the first, rev uh, the first uh, resurrection is mentioned in Revelation 20, therefore there must not be any other resurrections in front of that. In fact, it goes on to say, we shall not all sleep, and by sleep he means die, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And again, a lot of oversimplification here. People read the last trumpet here, so they go to Revelation, to the last of the seventh trumpets, and they say, well, that must be. This doesn't say 
anything about the, the, the trumpet judgments that are going on in the book of Revelation. It just says the last trumpet. Is it the last trumpet of the church? The last trumpet of for Israel? Is it the last trumpet in a series of other trumpets? Is it the last of the seven trumpets? We don't know. But here it says uh, this is going to happen at the last trumpet. And by the way, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the rapture happens, there's a trumpet there. And it says, and the dead will rise incorruptible. The dead are going to rise incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible will put on incorruptible, and this mortal will put on immortality. So when this corruption is put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So in the resurrection, we're going to be changed. Let's go ahead and go over to the passage. And I think that this will be helpful. I got a couple of them that I want to look at. In fact, I'm going to do it this way. I'm just going to go ahead and bring up my notes here. And I got a couple of them that I want to look at. Well, one of the first ones that I want to look at is, let me get it right here, is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through, go away. Done. Okay. I'm just trying to yell at my phone to see if it'll work, do what I want it to do. All right. So here we go. Um, so this is 1 Corinthians 15, 23 and 24. Now let's go back just a little bit. Let's go up to um, 15, 20 and 22. We're talking about the resurrection. It says, and whether or not in the end of Revelation when it says this is the first resurrection, if it only means at that moment after the end of the millennium that there's, there's a resurrection and not any before that. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is the first of those resurrected. For since by man death comes, by man also resurrection um, from the dead. For as Adam all, in all, for in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And then it says in verse 23, but each one in order. Now that word for order means military rank, like a general coming into a city and each, you know, of his ranks coming in behind him. And so Jesus was resurrected and then we're going to have the rapture of the church and they're going to be resurrected. And then we'll have the re resurrection of the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints and then have the resurrection of all of those that died during the millennium period. All of that is the first Re, uh, resurrection. All of those together. The Bible tells us that there is two resurrections, one for the living and one for the dead. The first one is a resurrection unto life. The second one is a resurrection unto death. So it says each one in order, Christ the firstfruits. Now what? Now listen to this. Afterwards, those who are Christ's at his coming. So Jesus is going to rise from the dead. That's the firstfruits. Then the rapture of the church, Christ at his coming. And then the end of the, uh, and then, uh, then comes the end. Then you have the end. And with the end, you have the resurrection of the tribulation saints, and then the resurrection of all the saints that were alive during the millennium period. And this is called the tribulation period. Let me find another verse for you here that I think can be very, very helpful for us. Um, so, Um, let's see what I want here. All right. Yeah. So let's look here at Acts. Let me bring you back in here again. Um, make sure I get the right place. So let's look here at Acts 24, 15, where it's talking about the resurrections. And it says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, 
So that's just one resurrection. It throws them all together, both living and the dead. So there will be a resurrection. So you can't say that there was the resurrection at the beginning of the millennium and then and not until after the millennium, the dead rose. If you're going to try to just say a resurrection or the first resurrection is just one moment in time. It says that both the just and the unjust. So there is one resurrection, right? Everybody's going to rise, but there's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. And the resurrection of the unjust is the first resurrection that comes uh, to pass in four different stages. And we kind of can see that here too in Revelation when we look at this passage that they use. This is what they use to say that there's only one resurrection and that is after the millennium. It says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or the image had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They were resurrected. They were resurrected before the millennial period. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So when it says the first resurrection, it's talking about the resurrection who has part in the first resurrection for the second death has no power over him. So you and I have part in the first resurrection and the second death has no power over us. So there are four stages to the first resurrection. And that is Jesus rising from the dead is the first fruits. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter four, the rapture of the church when we are caught up to meet him in the air, when we are changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. After the tribulation period, when the tribulation saints who have suffered and been tortured and tormented because they didn't take the mark of the beast will be resurrected and rule and reign with them for a thousand years. And then finally, all of those, and also I believe the Old Testament saints there as well. And then all of those in the millennium. So just because it uses the word first resurrection here in Revelation chapter 20, all, all of a sudden there's an oversimplification. And the way the argument is put is, here it says first resurrection, so I'm right and you're wrong, period. And it's like, hmm. I don't know, we gotta, we gotta compare scripture to scripture. And we don't wanna be so dogmatic because along with that dogmatic aspect, plus there's a lot of hatred when it comes to this topic, especially the resurrection and the rapture or post-trib and pre-trib. And I hear people slandering and, and when this is an open-handed debate, I've said this so many times, we believe everything the same, except a seven year period of when Jesus is gonna come back before or after and we ended up acting like the other person is a complete and total heretic. And we see this all the time. So um, thank you very much for the question. I appreciate that. Hopefully that's clear. Uh, we do have a hot topic coming out on the resurrection of the saints and the rapture of the church where we'll be covering this material uh, in a little bit more succinct, um, in a little bit more succinct manner. All right, so uh, very good. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and take questions now. It's good to see you guys uh, that are all on here. Um, it, uh, just kind of pop it on. Uh, we have a question here from JG and, uh, she, um, had a question for us right from the very beginning, had this thing loaded and ready to go. And so, um, JG says, question, could Reach College have a physical campus in Tucson or Vail in the future like Calvary Chapel Bible College has in Costa Mesa, California? Thank you, JG. I appreciate that. That's our goal. This is the rollout of Reach a college it's a school of ministry that calvary tucson has and we are desiring to equip the saints for the work of the ministry um, and for those who 
uh, whether they're young or old, those who might be in retirement, that just want to be more prepared for ministry. Uh, we'll take them through those classes. So yes, the goal is to have a physical campus on site um, at, at, in Calvary, Tucson, and who knows where else we'll end up having a campus on. Uh, we've been wanting to do a school of ministry for a long time. This is, this October will be 36 years of ministry for Calvary Chapel of Tucson, and we're just now adding our school of ministry. Uh, but I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. Reach College. If you guys are interested, you can look it up. Uh, Reach College. We also have our Reach Radio Station, which is one on one hundred six point seven, and uh, music from our Reach Worship Team. So thank you, JG, for the question. Yes, uh, we will have a physical campus um, before long. I'd like to see COVID clear up a little bit more. And I realize we're entering into a con you know real controversial area. But I'd like to keep people as safe as we can since there is a spike going on here in Tucson right now. All right. So thank you, JG. I appreciate your question. We have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. And Jari says, um, is it true, is it still true women are deceived more than men? It seems Satan, Adam, and the demons were not deceived but fell into temptation. Um, all right, let's just, let's break this question down, Jari, and, and I appreciate that. So yes, Paul says it was Eve who was deceived and not, and not Adam. And he says that when he's talking about context of having authority. I think it's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, I'd love to look up that passage and take a look at it. But the word authority is, it, when he says, I, I, I don't have a woman have authority, that word authority is the only place it's used in the Bible. And it's a bad authority. It's when you're ruling over someone. And it could be said about men as well. I'm not saying that women should have the same role as men. I'm not saying that they should have the same leadership role as men. I don't believe that they should. But I believe that these passages have been greatly misunderstood. Um, are women more deceived than men? I guess that depends on the woman and the man, right? I think that making a broad statement like that is not a good statement to make. I know guys that are very gullible and I know girls who are not. And so just because he says it was Eve that was deceived first and not Adam doesn't mean that was passed on to everybody. That's to me something that's that's a leap that you should never make. It doesn't say it doesn't say Eve was deceived and not Adam and all women are deceived uh, easier than men. That's a leap you're making to get to that conclusion. And it amazes me how people make that leap. But what he was saying is in the role of how temptation was hit, it was Eve that was deceived. And we know that when God was giving the curse to the ground, Satan, to the woman and to the man, that he talked about the role of a woman, her desire being for her husband. So this isn't the way God originally designed it when he created man and uh, male and female, although he did create woman second and as a helpmate to Adam. But this idea that women are somehow deceived and that's why they can't be in leadership. I think that there are different roles and that men have certain roles in leadership that women can't have. It doesn't make them better, doesn't make them smarter, doesn't make them deceived less, all right? So, um, but I, I believe that there are different roles for women and men. And I think sometimes when a man sees himself as superior, not being deceived as easily, he cuts out a lot of his opportunities to really receive wisdom and strength from his partner who was put there to help him. All right, so that's the first part of your question. 
Um, is it true women are deceived more than men? No, it's not true. Was it true that Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't? Yes. Um, it says, um, it seems Satan and Adam and the demons were not deceived. Now, I don't, I don't know about that. Adam, yeah, he made a decision. He saw it, he made a decision, which is worse than being deceived, right? Because you make a decision, deliberate decision to sin, where Eve was deceived. Um, Satan, sin is deceptive. I know he, he may have been deceived. I think he was deceived. He thought he could put his throne above the throne of God. I think he's still deceived today. He thinks he can win. I think the demons were deceived. They are not all knowing. Um, and so I don't know that I would say that, but they fell into temptation. Um, I, I don't know to what level they were deceived. I realized that we could discuss that, whether or not angels were deceived. But no, it is not true, the main part of your question there, that women are eas more easily deceived than men. It is true that Eve was deceived and then Adam made a choice to enter into sin. All right, how's that for stirring up some controversy here? All right, I appreciate your question. Jari, thank you very much. And uh, my computer's working much better today. I, I uh, appreciate you guys. We have a um, question here from Devin. And Devin says, <coughs> question, should women be in any type of authoritative position other than parenting? Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, it's interesting that we're getting all of these questions now. I think I know why. I think there's something out there that really deals with this, uh, with this role. Um, but yes, uh, there, there's a woman deacon named in the Bible. I think it's in the book of Romans. There were women that helped Paul start things out in Philippians and I think in Thessalonica. Uh, yes, there's no reason why a woman shouldn't be. I Personally, I even feel a pastor. Not like my wife's name is Kathy. Not like pastors Robert and Kathy Furrow. I'm, I'm talking about a woman's pastor or a children's pastor or a um, or a youth pastor. Because the Bible says, let women teach, let the older women teach the younger women and women are to teach children. And so, yeah, there's positions that they can have in leadership. Sometimes women are incredibly skilled in organization more than, more than, than men are. And to put them in a position where they are an organization or to put them in a position uh, where, where they are in some kind of leadership as long as they aren't taking on that senior pastor role um, and the word authority, I'm gonna, I'd love to get that passage. If one of you guys wants to throw that passage up here, we'll look at it. Um, where it talks about, I do not have a woman to have authority over men. Uh, you could use a man in that word authority as well because the word authority there is not a good word. It's not just like a general authority. Like I have authority as a senior pastor. It's not that. It's a, it's a bad word for authority. And we'll talk about it a little bit later on. All right, Devin, thank you very much for your question. Interesting that it came right on the heels of Jari's question, um, kind of along the same lines. So we have a question here from, is it Iris? Iris says, um, hello, pastor, question. Is there a statement in the Bible that there is the mark of Christ? Um, so the 144,000 in the book of Revelation are sealed with, I can't remember how they word that. But the 144,000 are sealed, some kind of a mark. And then it's believed that the Antichrist comes out and marks his people. Um, the Bible does talk about us receiving a name. 
Um, and I'm trying to remember, gosh, I wish I had a better memory. I'm trying to remember if Revelation talks about us receiving a tattoo or um, if that is uh, Christ. I know he has Lord of Lords and King of Kings on his thighs when he returns. Could be on a, you know, a robe or pants, you know, when he returns. Um, but uh, I think there is something about us having some kind of mark of Christ, but I'm just right now, it's kind of slipping, but I do know the 144,000 are sealed and then the Antichrist comes out with his mark. Um, so obviously it wouldn't be a physical mark now. Maybe someday it will be a physical mark. I don't know. Great question, Iris. I wish I had more answers to you. I'll take some time to look that up if I can remember and get to it again and feel free to bring that back up again in the future. Okay, so I uh, appreciate your question. So uh, we have a question from America. Question, my fifth grade teacher, my fifth grade's teacher is making the kids study the tests on the Big Bang Theory. The show, the TV show? Oh no, the actual Big Bang, okay. Sorry, no, I know, bad. I've tried, I've trained my son in the truth and I have um, a teacher's conference Wednesday and would like to address this. Any advice to me? Thanks. Yes. I would love to give you some advice as you're talking to the teacher. Uh, first of all, the fact that there was a Big Bang doesn't mean God didn't create the Big Bang. All right? So when people say, well, we see evidence of the trace radiation for the Big Bang, we know it happened, um, there's some assumptions you're making that everything is kind of the same. You're assuming it was a Big Bang and not something else that we don't know about right? Because we certainly don't know everything in science. We know that God established the world by order and that he used certain laws and that those laws are in action around us to keep the world moving, spinning, where it should be from the sun, the moon doing the work, the moon does the magnetic field doing what it does. And so all of that is science. Um, and is the laws of um, natural laws that are happening. And so God created the earth and when he created the earth, he created it to have an appearance of age. I, just like when God created Adam, I assume he created him, I don't know, 25, 30 years old, I don't know, but older. And if a scientist had looked at him the day before, then you couldn't say, well, you're stupid, he was, he was created yesterday. Because to him it looked like it was older. So when they look in a telescope and they look out 200,000 years and they see light, 200,000 light years, light coming through that, and something's going on that happened 200,000 light years ago. So the earth is created to look like it has age. So I always acquiesce this argument. I always go, I'm not gonna get into it with you. And that's what I would suggest you teach the kids. I would suggest that you teach them just because scientists come up with the way in which God created the earth, if in fact it was a big bang. I'm not saying it was, I'm just saying if it was doesn't mean it wasn't God. They're just looking back to an all-powerful God who spans the universe with his hands. The Bible says he shook it out like a blanket. And if that's shaking it out like a oh, blanket, it was a big bang taking place. By the way, time is relative. Everything changes. And so when it was all created, you could have had the earth going out. You could have had different time going on in different places. So it, it, it happened that gr greater gravity causes time to move faster. The speed of light causes time to change. And so when God created the earth in a second and it all went out and started expanding at such a fast rate of speed, 
who knows how much time was passing in a certain amount of time. What I'm saying is, is it's very possible that it could be a young Earth and an old Earth at the same time, which is kind of mind-boggling. But hey, there's a lot we don't know about quantum physics and the world that God made. We are continuing to discover that. So I would not have a conversation with your fifth grade teacher about the Big Bang Theory. And I, I assume this is a secular school. They're going to teach it from a secular point of view. I think instead, you should have a conversation with your child about what's being taught. And that if they're looking as evolution or natural selection as this great power that formed life on the earth, then you want to have that conversation with them. Let them know how to argue against it. Um, let them know how to make a stand against you know, natural selection and the fact that there's never been anything that has evolved, that we have no evidence of anything that's ever evolved upon the earth. We have uh, adaptation, what we would call microevolution, where certain animals move to the north and they get uh, thicker coats. But they're still dogs. They were dogs when they went, they were dogs when they got there, just dogs with thicker coats. So talk to her about that. There's a book um, by Lee Strobel called The Case for Creation. It's a little bit dated with its science, but his philosophies on how we handle evolution is really, really good. So I hope that helps. I, I would not go in to a secular teacher and say, hey, you shouldn't be teaching my child, you know, the Big Bang Theory. This is, it's my, it can, I, I wouldn't do that. Your child is going to be out in the real world sooner or later. We have to equip them. We don't need to protect them from thoughts. We need to come in and give them the answer to those thoughts. There are plenty of things we need to protect our kids from, but what's being taught in science is not one of them. We want to go in and tell them and help give them answers uh, to what is actually being taught. All right, Eric, I really appreciate that. I hope it was helpful. As always, you're welcome to give a follow-up question if you have more questions about that. All right, uh, I appreciate that. So we have another question here from Matt. It's good to see you guys. Matt comes to us from Facebook. By the way, this is up on three different Facebook channels and on YouTube as well. So it's good to see you guys wherever you found us. I hope that you're really blessed. We we're looking for questions. Any questions you want to ask about the Bible, about prophecy, about Christian living, uh, we're taking all of those. All right, so question. Matt says, Pfizer and Moderna both tested their vaccines against, um, against fetal cells, and J&J &J used fetal cells to produce their vaccine. This really convicts me and other friends of mine. Are we right to be convicted that they used uh, the, um, the use of aborted fetal cells? All right, Matt, I appreciate your question. So in the, I, I don't know, all of how people use how um, research is done with aborted fetal cells. I haven't done enough to be able to talk um, really informed about it, but here's what I understand. That back in the 70s, there were some fetal cells that were taken and cells were grown from that. And from that, there's been tests done on all kinds of different vaccines on all kinds of different medical procedures. And when we make a stand against the vaccines on this grounds, then we better make a stand on every other ground. Sometimes I wonder if we are making a stand 
one place when we haven't made a stand in another place. Now maybe the, the fact that fetal cells were used to make these vaccines is getting people more informed and that's okay. Um, personally, I knew this information and I got the vaccine. I got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, I prayed about it. Uh, I looked for God to give me direction. I felt like I had a yes to get the vaccine. I prayed about it more. I gave God a chance to stop me and I made the decision. I am vehemently against abortion. I believe it is the taking of a life and I think that my prayer is that Roe versus Wade gets overturned and it goes back to the states. I think we're gonna have a civil war over this issue uh, that is completely, uh, that will be, com that will be, I, I think it's gonna be devastating to our country, really. I really believe we're entering into the end times and I really believe that abortion is going to be, that it is the issue of our day. And um, I, whether or not these statements are 100% true, I don't know that of what you're saying. I'm just going to assume that what you say is correct. Um, I think this is a decision for each one to make. But if you're going to make that, if you're going to have a, a conscience call, a conviction that says, I'm not going to take this vaccine because it was using fetal cells, then be consistent with that. Then search out everything else that has had fetal cell research that has been involved in it. And I think you're going to find out that's a lot of things within science and we're going to end up being like the Jehovah Witnesses who won't take any medical help at all. Uh, I don't believe that any any babies lost their lives, any babies who were in, in women's wombs lost their lives in order for these vaccines to be produced. Okay? I don't believe that. And so for me personally, this is the decision that I've made. Um, good, bad, right, wrong. That's the decision that I've made. And that... No, that's it. That's the way that I really feel about it. So the question that you had was, this really convicts me, and I understand that. It was a struggle that I had too. And other friends of mine, are we right in being convicted uh, in the use of aborted fetal cells? I wish they weren't used. Uh, I think it should be a consideration. Uh, but I think the fact that no babies were killed to do this is a really important point. And that these babies had been aborted probably back in the 70s doesn't make that abortion of those babies okay. I'm just saying, you know, what it is that I understand. All right, so thank you for your question, Matt. It's a hard one and I appreciate that. I appreciate hard questions that need this kind of an answer. All right, um, let me just take go ahead and take this opportunity to talk a little bit about COVID right now. So I don't know where you're at and I don't know what's happening there, but in Arizona, there's definitely a spike going on right now and I would encourage you just to be safe. Just social distance, do whatever you've got to do to make yourself safe, all right? And um, I really appreciate you, Matt. Thank you very much for your question, all right? Uh, that one's gonna make some people mad. All right, uh, we have another question from Jari here. Jari says, uh, question, will my pets and plants be raptured with me? I don't want anything to happen to them. Uh, I appreciate you, Jari. Um, and we've all had, uh, you know, pets that we really love. And this is a question that is, this is an answer. This question here is brought up by a lot of different people and there's a lot of different answers. And some really good pastors uh, and really good teachers will say, yes, they're gonna be with you. 
that your pets are going to go. I don't know about your plants, but your pets are going to go. They'll say, you know, God knows that you love them. God knows you want to see them again. And it's going to be heaven. And then what, there's enough space. God can do whatever God wants to do. And if we're going to have our pets in heaven, we can have our pet. If God wants our pets to be in heaven, he can have our pets in heaven. Uh, I don't, there are animals, right? In heaven. At least Jesus comes riding back on a horse. Um, but I don't know if the Bible ever says that's going to happen. And so if we're talking about looking at things through the lens of scripture, I don't know of any passage that you can go to and say, the Bible says this, so my pets are for sure going to be in heaven. I think you've just got to got to go. I hope so. Right? I hope so. And um, if they're there, I'll be surprised. If I'm not there, some of my friends who believe that they're going to be there will be surprised. All right? So I God do whatever God wants to do. And there's nothing too hard for him. So God could certainly do that. Um, whether or not pets are for here on earth and we're going to be in eternity, kind of like marriages for here on earth and then eternity. It's not saying they're trivial. It's just saying eternity, things change. All right? So thank you, Jari, for your question. I really appreciate that. Well, good to see you on here, by the way, Daniel. I appreciate you being here. Uh, so, all right, let's go on and find another question from Jari. Jari has a question about um, Lazarus being resurrected, I think. Um, question, was Lazarus cast out of heaven when he returned to earth after Jesus rose him from the dead? And why did he write any, why didn't he write any books after um, about what he saw or anything at all of what God looks like? Um, all of the answers to all of those for me, Jari, is I don't know. They're beyond the scope of what I think that we can understand. I do know there are people going to heaven today. There are people that are having near-death experiences or dreams or whatever, and then they write books about what heaven's going to be like. I am very, very skeptical of all of these books. Paul said, Paul had really gone there. Paul said, I knew a man, whether in spirit or out of spirit, I don't know, who went into the third heavens and saw things that were unspeakable. So there are things in heaven that are unspeakable. And I think that if we went there, we would say the same thing. We would come back and go, yeah, these things are unspeakable. And I don't know how to describe them. I think that's literally what Paul meant. I just can't describe the very things that I'm finding here. So let's go through your questions here. Um, was Lazarus um, taken out of heaven? In other words, was he like in glory going, oh, praise God, this is wonderful. And then all of a sudden, like in the tomb, what's that smell? And, and having to get up and waddle out and be unwrapped. I don't know. Um, I'm going to assume he was not in heaven because I don't think that any of the Old Testament saints were in heaven. I think they were, there's a place called Abraham's comfort. Jesus talked about this when he told the story of the rich man and the poor man. And there was a place where the poor man was being comforted by Abraham. And so was he in Abraham's comfort and then brought up into the, the back into his body? Maybe. Um, maybe that Abraham comfort was a story and not really a reality. Uh, so we don't know. I mean, I think, I think that we just don't know. What we know now is to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So if it happened now, yes, we'd be sucked back in from being in the presence of God. And uh, as Chuck Smith used to say, I'm not going to be very happy with you if, uh, if you do that with me. Um, and then why didn't you write any books? Because I don't think anybody should be writing books when they, if they die and go to heaven and come back. 
Um, you've your near-death experience. Um, may, maybe, you know, if you died on the table and came back, write about what you saw. But as far as going to heaven and coming back and describing it, I'm skeptical of those books. I personally don't think they're true. I could be wrong, obviously, right? I could be wrong. But I'm skeptical. I don't think they're true. That is skeptical Robert Furrow. All right? So we have a question from Joe. Joe, it's good to see you. Joe says, question, why does the Bible, why um, does the Bible refer to wisdom as her and she? Yeah, so in um, Proverbs, wisdom is, is personified as a person. And it's a her. It's, it's a female that wisdom is personified as. And what I've heard, again, I'm not an expert in this area, but all I can tell you is what I have heard and what I've looked up in the past when I've been covering those passages is that um, like we would call in, in, in our culture, and I, this may very well be changing as I say this, um, but we would call a boat a her. Usually we call a car a her. Uh, you, there are certain things we refer to in, in, in our language as a her. In the Hebrew language, things like wisdom, uh, understanding would be referred to as a her. That's what I understand. Uh, do I think that it's a literal woman that's walking around? No, I don't. Uh, I think that for it to be in the feminine is fine and I understand it. I don't think wisdom is neither male nor female. Um, although you could, when you start looking at wisdom and you look at the claims of wisdom, you could start to say, this looks like Jesus. And it does a bunch. Uh, he is the he is the wise one, right? He is the all wise one, and so he's the most wise person that there is. And so when you look at wisdom and you see Jesus, but the fact that it's personified as a her. Remember, God is God, and He created man, male and female. He created them, right? So I don't know that wisdom would be created one way or another. So all right, hope that's helpful. Joe, thank you very much for your question. I appreciate it. Hope you have a great day. We have a question from Debbie. And Debbie says, um, question, is it in the New Testament, in the end of times, the Romans are in rule? It stands out in my mind for some reason, thank you, Pastor Robert, paths are online a few times weekly, but you are appreciated. All right, well, thank you very much. So you're asking if there is a revival of the Roman Empire in the last days. And the answer to that is yes, there is a revival of the Roman Empire. Um, you have Nebuchadnezzar's vision where he sees a statue. The statue had eggs, legs of iron, had eggs of iron, and legs of iron and feet of, of mixed iron and clay. That would be the revival of the Roman Empire. We see this throughout many different prophecies in the Bible, including Revelation and Daniel, not only in that statue. We also know that in Daniel chapter 9, when it talks about the Antichrist being cut off but not for himself, it says the people, but then one will arise from the people who destroyed the city, the city's Jerusalem, the Romans destroyed the city, so the Antichrist is going to have some connection to Rome. I don't know what connection that'll be. I can only speculate, uh, but he's going to have some connection uh, to Rome. 
All right. So thank you very much. Oh, and and um, Rome was probably. I mean, Greek Greece was very dominant. Rome became probably more dominant. They controlled more parts of the world than anyone else. You had um, Babylon as a world power, the Medo Persian Medo Persian Empire as world rule. You had the Greeks rule as a world rule, and the Romans rule as a world rule. Um, and the Romans seem to have done the most thorough, complete job, and the Antichrist is going to come out of that and control the entire world. And we may be seeing those things happen today, by the way. We could talk about a little bit of a prophecy update, but coming on to the scene of the world is this new sense of control, and I think that that's going to continue, and that we are being ushered into the last days. I think we're living on them, and they are very rapidly coming upon us. All right? Thank you. Debbie, I really appreciate that. Hope you have a great day. Uh, we have another question from Matt. All right. So uh, another question from Matt. Another question about the vaccines. The latest vaccine mandate is also upsetting because we feel it is attacking our freedoms. But is fighting for freedom biblical? Or is it just something we expect because we live in the USA? Uh, thank you, Matt. Good question, very thought out question. Um, yeah, Jesus basically told us to lay down our rights. If somebody asks you for something you've got, give it to them. If they take your coat, give them your coat. Or if they take your, your shirt, give them your coat. If they ask you to go one mile, go with them two miles. I heard someone say one time that Paul never demanded his rights. Mm, and that's just not true. Paul, at one point, when he was released from the Philippian jail said, I'm a Roman and you're gonna, you, you arrest me publicly and then release me privately? No, I will be released. And that he demanded his rights. He also another point said, you're gonna beat a Roman? So he demanded his rights as a Roman not to be beaten. So he did demand his rights. So I do think there's a time for us to take our rights that are given to us by governments for protection. And that includes the governments that we're in, okay? I also think that sometimes we give them up. Sometimes we say, you know what? I live for Christ. My kingdom is in heaven and I'm not going to sit here and hang on to my rights. And if somebody slaps my right cheek, I'm going to turn to my left. It doesn't mean to say anything about self-defense. It just simply says, if someone's going to insult you, slap you, then turn to them the other cheek. Don't worry about it. God's got you. Okay? He's going to take care of you. So the latest vaccine mandate, let's get into that, is upsetting uh, because I feel like it's attacking our freedoms. And I... And not only do I feel like, do you feel like it's attacking your freedoms? It is. I, I think that Biden said, I don't care about freedoms. We're going to get people, make people get mandate, uh, get mandate these vaccines. And personally, I think that's wrong. Whether or not I think people should get the vaccine is another point at this point. Is another, yeah, it's another point at this point. Uh, I don't think that anybody should be made to take the vaccine. And I think that's really important for us to understand. And um, I don't think neither should we just raise up our hackles because someone says, get it. And you're like, no, I'm not going to get it. An interesting thought. What if Trump would have won in the election and Biden would have lost? Don't you think that it would be the conservatives that would be taking the vaccine and the 
progressives who wouldn't be, it would be flipped. And I think that's just an interesting thought. It was under the Trump administration, Project Warp Speed, that these vaccines were started out. And so I think that's just an interesting question. Are we just being stubborn to be stubborn? And if that's the case, maybe we really ought to reevaluate and say, I'm, I'm not just going to be, you know, stubborn just to be stubborn. Um, is fighting for freedom biblical? I think the gospel is much more important. The real question is, should you take the vaccine? I guess that's the real question. Forget about who's mandating anything. The real question for us is, should I take the vaccine? And you should pray and seek God and look for direction. For some, I'm going to assume that the answer is no. For others, I assume the answer is going to be yes. And I don't know, I think the majority maybe yes. I, that's kind of my, from my perspective. I'm certainly not God. God's going to do what God's going to do without my thought. Um, but should we fight for biblical, uh, for freedom uh, biblically? Uh, I don't think so. I think, you know, I mean, it depends on, it depends on your position. Are you soldier in war? Uh, are you going to war for the sake of the freedom of the United States? Then that's one thing. Uh, are you, um, are you, clean things up here a little bit. I don't know why that cord's popping up. What's going on? Oh, that's that cord. All right. Sorry, I got distracted. My OCD. I'm like, what's going on here? Um, so yeah, should we fight for our biblical freedom right now? I, I had said no before, but maybe yes. I mean, it's it's kind of like yes and no, I guess. Or the most important thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Should, we have a country that has freedoms for us to be able to preach it, so we should hang on to that freedom that we have to be able to preach these things. All right. So sorry about the little back and forth there. Um, or is it just something we accept because we live in the USA? And I think that we do have special freedoms in the United States. It's a drag to see them going and hopefully they won't in the long haul. Hopefully we'll continue to have our freedoms because it's a really good thing to have the freedoms uh, that we have. All right, so thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Follow-up questions again are welcome. If you have more questions about that, I would love to address if I didn't really address that correctly or if you're at all confused about my answer because I might be confused about my answer. Uh, there as well. Um, we have another question from Jari. Uh, good to see you again, Jari. Jari says, should we anoint our houses with oil? How should we view haunted houses, vampires, etc.? Um, so I'm looking biblically, okay? And I don't think that houses need to be anointed with holy water or anointed with oil. Um, if a Christian decides that they want to anoint their house, sh sure, go ahead. I, I don't know that there's any restrictions. The Bible says don't anoint your house. The Bible does, it says go anoint your house. And don't think that because your house is anointed that you've got any more protection than anywhere uh, than you would before you went out and had the house anointed. And so sometimes people ask me if I'll come to their house and, and sprinkle it with holy water. My answer is always no. I'm not going to come to your house and sprinkle it with holy water because you don't need it. You are a sanctified individual. Uh, haunted houses, I'm not, I, I think it's all demonic, personally. And I'm not worried about haunted houses because I have Jesus inside of me. Vampires, I think you're made up. Okay, 
So I don't think they're true. So um, yeah, I'm not worried about those at all. Um, so no, I don't think we should worry about our house being haunted. Hey, we trust in Jesus. And if you do get scared, if you are scared, it's, it's all right. Um, but call on the name of Jesus. Ask him to help you. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Jesus is more powerful than any demon or Satan himself. Uh, Jesus talked about Satan being a strong man who had his goods secure, but a stronger than the strong man can go and take away those goods from him, which is a pretty amazing statement. So Jesus is the stronger of the strong man. Hold on to Christ. Even demons tremble at the name of Jesus. Um, if you are in Christ, the wicked one cannot touch you. Jesus said in Matthew 19, Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means hurt you. I'm not sure that's Matthew, that's Matthew or Luke 19, but he said it. Okay? So, no jar, you don't need to be worried about those things uh, if you are committed to Christ and living for him. All right? And I think any haunted houses are demonic and, and not so-called spirits. All right? So thank you very much, Jari, again, for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Adrian. And Adrian says, Pastor Robert, can you tell us about the end times and what happens after Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years? What happens next? And where can I read about that in the Bible? Thank you and God bless you. Well, Adrian, thank you for your question. I really appreciate that. So yes, um, when the thousand years are done, then Satan is re-released from his chains, his prison, and he deceives the world again. And I take it this time it happens kind of quickly. Remember, there's a thousand years going on and the world once again rebels against God. And there's this attack against um, the nation of Israel at that time. Why would God let Satan back out again? I think because there's a revelation and the people that were living under the millennium period, under the rule and reign of Christ, had to have an opportunity to be able to reject him the same way everybody else did. So that's what I think is going on when Satan is re-released. And then Jesus brings an end to that, takes Satan, has him captured, has him thrown into the hell. And uh, then there's the resurrection of the rest of the dead. Okay, so there's the ones that were alive during the, the um, millennium period who may have died. And then there's that resurrection. That's the end of the first resurrection, which is anyone who, the resurrection of the just. And then there's the resurrection of the second death, which is for judgment. What, an, what, a, what a weird and strange, um, onimous, uh, um, uh, well, I don't know what word I'm looking for. Um, what a, just a weird moment that's going to be. When all of us who are alive and have Christ, have life in Christ, will see everyone rise from the dead that's ever existed to be judged and then to be condemned. How tragic and sad. Um, Revelation 19 and 20 is where you would go to read about that. You can cross-reference from there. Go to Blue Letter Bible. Uh, look up Revelation 19 and 20 as it starts to talk about the end of the millennium period and then cross-reference it and you're going to find a lot of other passages in the Bible that talk about these things as well. All right. So, um, Adrian, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to talk sometime about what, what's going to happen leading up to the millennium period as well. Um, we have a question here um, from Haley. Haley says, can Christians who die 
and go to heaven, watch over their loved ones on earth, or can they send a sign to them to see them at all? Um, and my answer to that, Haley, is I don't know. Uh, I assume that they are in heaven doing heavenly things, that they are not consumed with the, uh, concerned with this earth. Um, do I have the idea that they're just all watching us? I would like my privacy sometimes, but then again, if they're watching, I guess they're not shocked. Uh, I don't think they're watching. I think the great um, host said, since we are surrounded by such a great host of, uh, of um, witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12, I think is all the saints that have gone before us. Um, in the first century, Jew believed that the body, the person hung out with the body spiritually for about three days. Doesn't mean they were in the body, but they were just around the body for about three days afterwards. So maybe why we started burying three days afterwards. We see tended to say very long after that now, or well after that now. Um, but originally that was kind of the, the, the thought. Um, my wife passed, I, my wife got lung cancer in 2011 and I lost her in 2012, uh, since been remarried by the way. Um, but I know that after she died and when I was going through the midst of grief that I often would like, I sense I feel, I felt her like she was there with me, whether or not that was just my grief or whether God allowed her to be there at all while I was going through that heavy grief and missing her. I don't know. So sorry that I don't have more answers for that, Haley, but I don't know of anything biblical that says that they're around or that they're able to watch us. All right, so thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see what other questions we've got here. Um, we have a question. Uh, let's see, uh, let's have a question. All right, we have a question from Diana or Diane. And Diane's question is, uh, someone asked if ghosts are not real, why do people see loved ones when they are dying? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure. Some people see Jesus. Some people see other things. Um, I was talking about my late wife passing away. I do know that at the moment that she died, she had a shocked look on her face. I don't know what that was. I have no idea but I like to think it was Jesus. The Bible says that the death of his saints is precious in his eyes. And we know that Jesus stood up to receive Stephen, the first martyr. And I would like to think that we see Jesus. The concept of our lives flashing before our eyes, the concept of seeing loved ones that have died before us going on is something that we hear about and see. Although I don't know that it's biblical. I, I don't know of anything, and when, when I say I don't know, it's biblical, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not true, right? It just means that the Bible doesn't address it. So I'm not using that in a negative sense. There are other things that I would say that's not biblical in a negative sense because the Bible speaks against it. Here the Bible is just silent. And uh, hey, where the Bible's silent, we want to be silent. Where the Bible speaks, we want to speak. So sometimes we have to say, I just don't know. So the experience of people seeing loved ones when they die, I don't know. People have seen all kinds of things. Um, I have a friend that had a heart attack on a golf course. Just hit a shot, dropped over, dead. And um, they did CPR on him until the paramedics got there. Then they revived him. And so I asked him, 
what what'd you see when you died? Well, what was it? What happened? And he said to me, nothing. I didn't see anything. And he was dead for quite a while. They were keeping oxygen moving through his brain by doing CPR. They literally saved his life by doing CPR on him. Um, but I don't know about any of these accounts or how I would um, apply them or, you know, I know near-death experience is a lot of interesting stuff, but I don't know how, exactly how I would apply them. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. It's good to see you guys here. Um, so let's see, let's uh, go ahead and look for another question here. Um, we have another question from, is that Psychman? Psychman 45, Psychman 45. Um, could where the body is the eagles will be gathered, Jesus in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 24, mean something similar if the Son of Man is lifted up, all will come to me, or something working off memory. Uh, yeah, I, okay, so Jesus is talking about being lifted up, he's talking about the cross. If I be lifted up, I'll draw him in unto me. So he's, he's lifted up, he dies on that cross, and people are coming to him to find salvation, okay? I also think we could use that in the sense that if I lift Christ up, he'll draw all people into me. So that as a preacher, I want to teach Christ. I want to I want to lift Jesus up because he'll draw people to him. People are drawn to Christ. He's a compelling figure for a good reason. He's God. And people are compelled by him. And so we want to lift him up. I think where he says where the body um, body is, the eagles will gather is talking about the last days and talking about the battle of Arm Armageddon. That's what I think that is. I think uh, there's going to be such a great slaughter in the very last battle on earth that the birds the care and the birds are going to come and feast on the carrion and it's a gruesome thought but jesus brought it up all right and i think that that's what that means so i don't think he was talking about his body on the cross uh his body was taken down before night fell that evening because of the sabbath that was on the next day and when he was talking about being lifted up on the cross he was talking about his crucifixion and we can use it, I think, as a sense of lift Jesus up and you'll draw all people into you. Teach Jesus. What are, we, what are we teaching about enthusiasm? I want you to be enthusiastic. I want to talk to you today about enthusiasm or, or I want to talk to you today about how to be happy instead of preaching Christ and him resurrected and lifting Jesus up because he'll draw all people unto him. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. So I think we have time for one more question. We're coming to the end of our uh, time together again today. I appreciate that. I really enjoy getting together with you guys and answering questions for several reasons. Um, one, it's just nice to interact with you guys. Um, I've never had this kind of interaction before where we could just sit and talk about things that are on your heart and mind and answers that you want. And it really helps me as a teacher um, to be able to, I think, even teach generally on passages because I, I'm looking at the questions that are being raised instead of being a Christian for 35, 36 years and this kind of going down it the way that I would want to go out of passage. Um, so from Sandy, this will be our last question for today. It's been good to see you guys. You can continue to write your questions down. We'll use questions that are written down here at the end here after I sign off, or you could write them until I sign off uh, for future Q&As. All right, good to be here with you guys today. So Sandy says, question. This will be easy for you. I hope so. Someone told me the tribulation is a time given for Jesus to come to the earth. I thought it was for an unsaved person to come to Christ. 
All right, so I'm trying to figure out what they meant when they said that. Someone told me the tribulation is a time given, oh, for Jews to come to Christ. I just read it completely. Let me go ahead and reread it again. That's too funny. Questions, this will be easy for you. Someone told me that the tribulation is a time given for Jews to come to Christ. I thought it was for any unsafe person to come to Christ. And the answer to, you got two questions there, um, or a question and a statement. The answer to both of those is yes. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says that the day of the Lord is a day of dread. It is a time of Jacob's trouble and he will be saved out of it. So it's right there. There's other passages as well. We could talk about Romans 11 and some other ones. Uh, Zechariah 12, 10, that God's gonna pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem. And they're gonna weep for him as one who weeps for an only son when they look upon me, God speaking whom they pierced. Um, so yes, Jews will be, God, the Jewish nation will come to Christ during the tribulation period. And it's a time for God to finish things, uh, Daniel chapter nine, to finish things for the, the nation of Israel. But there's gonna be a lot of Gentiles in the tribulation period. And any Gentile could come to Christ as well. And anybody that we've, we've thought about can come to Christ. It's gonna be an incredibly difficult time to, to be a Christian, but there are gonna be many who become Christians. And these are spoken of as well with the Jews that are persecuted and killed in Revelation chapter 20, where it says, I saw the dead and all of those that had taken the mark from the beast and they ruled and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So yes, unsafe, any unsafe person can come to Christ. Yes, God is doing a special work with the nation of Israel and they are coming to Christ during the tribulation period. All right, so thank you guys very much for your questions. Uh, we have a service in a couple of hours. Uh, we're gonna be talking about four teachings of Jesus that every Christian should know. It's the beginning of Luke chapter 11. I look forward to covering them there with you. Uh, and God bless you guys. It's been great hanging out with you and spending some time with you. I hope you're blessed. I hope you have a blessed day. I hope you find yourself in church or are going to church online tomorrow. Stay safe and um, keep the questions coming. All right, God bless you guys. We'll see you later on. I'm signing.